0: Welcome to the Oakcrest Podcast Channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia, challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop their intellect, character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. On today's podcast, English teacher Stephanie Passero talks about why good literature is so crucial in forming our daughters' hearts and minds and how to encourage in them a love for reading good books. Flannery O'Connor, in Mystery and Manners, claims that an English teacher's job is to teach her students good taste. What should be a simple good, encouraging our children and teens to read for pleasure, has become increasingly difficult with our modern culture's acceptance of wrong is right. My name is Stephanie Passero. I've taught English grammar and literature at Oak Crest School for six years now, and as a professional who works with young people, I would like to share some of the trends I and my colleagues have been noticing over the years concerning teens and the books they read. Vigilance in steering our young people toward good books is necessary. The cover of a book alone may not reveal its contents. A simple-looking flower could grace the cover of a book with quite disturbing material. A harmless-looking fantasy novel might contain alarmingly sexually explicit scenes written in graphic detail. The fight against bad books is certainly not new. C.S. Lewis criticizes the damage what he calls the Green Book will do in his Abolition of Man— Dorian Gray suffers the loss of his soul through the yellow book of hedonism in Oscar Wilde's eponymous novel. And Victor Frankenstein loses his humanity in pursuing the dark arts inspired by a dangerous book by Cornelius Agrippa and Mary Shelley's famous story. We teachers have noticed many superficial books our students gravitate towards when they make choices in reading for pleasure. With book challenges they find from various media outlets, teens tend to value the number of books they can read in a set amount of time, not necessarily the quality. Modern books that can be read quickly, with very little thought, have been written the same way, purely for gratification in the moment, with little to fill it besides plot alone. Often loaded with empty symbols, these types of books neglect any kind of moral development or Christian anthropology. It is no surprise that modernity has provided more books of this sort than not, Turning our children loose in a library or bookstore and asking a librarian or bookseller for advice no longer carries the same confidence in filling our children with wonder and a unified goal of moral development. Instead, our children may easily stumble upon any number of Dorian's yellow books, which may unfortunately come with a great number of recommendations or praise from critics and booksellers. The lines between mature adult fiction and teen reads seem to have been blurred with increasingly inappropriate material being offered to young readers. We may find that authors we have relied on in the past have now changed direction and we can no longer entrust our children to them. We want books for our children that help in the aim of supporting parents and educators in reminding children that they are made in God's image and are destined to be with him forever, instilling wonder, revealing truth, and emphasizing the beautiful. This calls for vigilance in not only seeking so-called clean books that avoid coarse language for the sake of it or disturbing imagery and pornography, but also books that fill a young person's moral imagination with admirable heroes and lessons learned. Sage advice, ethical candor, courage, faithfulness, kindness, compassion-filled books wrought with adventure, providing a window into a complex interior life, fulfill readers in a way incomparable to a disposable empty book devoid of meaning. A good book brings the joy of seeking truth to the reader, which forms her good taste. Vigen Garoyen, a now-retired professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, loves fairy tales and wrote a book called Tending the Heart of Virtue, which proposes the importance of fairy tales for children. He says when his children stopped letting him read fairy tales aloud to them, he decided to teach fairy tales to his college students. He found these stories have a great impact on his students, even though he had children in mind when he wrote Tending the Heart of Virtue. Grorin has a great summary of the moral imagination. He says, The moral imagination is the very process by which the self makes metaphors out of images collected by experience, and then employs these metaphors to find moral correspondences in experience. Grorin expresses a child's native sense of narrative, coupled with a blossoming imagination. Virtue depends upon the moral imagination which is brought to life in good stories. Jonathan Jones in the magazine First Things also adds that the moral imagination is the proper ordering of the soul. Humans are connected with a sacramental order of creation and can draw true analogies in lived experiences which can be interpreted through imagination. This means our moral imagination is active and needs proper exercise so it will not, as Gororin says, atrophy like a muscle that is not used. The richness or poverty of the moral imagination depends on the richness or poverty of the experience. Parents, as the primary teachers of their children, provide these early experiences for them, as do the stories they introduce to their children. Good stories allow the reader, as Gororin says intending the Heart of Virtue, to imagine herself in a place of heroes and heroines and other worlds, experiencing the risks taken without having to endure all the consequences of failure, but still receiving the lessons. A child having read these stories will have a sharpened moral imagination. These stories offer powerful images of good and evil and show our children how to love through experiences and images they can interpret in their world. Because stories fill our children up with experiences from which they can draw and create, it is vital to fill our children up with good stories, ones steeped in symbols and rich themes in which the author intends more for his or her readers than plot alone. It is difficult to keep up with the avalanche of modern teen and preteen literature. It is impractical for parents and teachers to try to read everything our daughters want to read before they can get to it. One approach is to intervene early, inundate her with good stories while she's in the grammar stage, These stories are not meant to merely pass the time or provide passive escape, but are an important part of a daughter's well-rounded education in virtue. C.S. Lewis addresses the accusation that fairy tales are some form of escapism in his essay, On Three Ways of Writing for Children. He says the escapism to be wary of is in realism that is so close to school life that the child returns to the real world discontented. Lewis calls these types of stories flattery of the ego. The pleasure consists in picturing oneself as the object of admiration, while the fairy tale arouses the reader's longing for he knows not what. Lewis says fairy tales stir readers with a sense of something beyond her reach and gives new dimensions of depth. She does not despise the real woods because she has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. The child reading the type of book Lewis calls escapism desires success and is unhappy once the book is finished because she cannot have it. The child reading the fairy tale is happy for the very fact of desiring. Many modern teen novels fit this flattery of the ego category of which Lewis speaks. Think of the kind of novel in which an attractive teen's girl's main purpose is navigating a love triangle with perhaps uh, some friends and flat characteristics that act as a foil to the main character, whom we are to admire merely because she is attractive. These novels are fun to read, but they are disposable and do nothing to feed our daughters. Good books have the power to waken our minds to the beauty of the world while a more trivial novel falsely makes us unhappy with the real world. Those who may have read from Andrew King's Blue Fairy book may object to the violence in the original fairy tales, but there is nothing to fear about inadvertently introducing some version of the boogeyman to your daughter— G.K. Chesterton wrote an essay called The Red Angel, and in it he asserts that we do not give children the boogeyman through fairy tales. What fairy tales give the child is her first clear idea of the possible defeat of the boogeyman. Chesterton says the baby has known the dragon intimately ever since she had an imagination. What fairy tales provide for her is a St. George to kill the dragon. When our children are younger, they're more open to our opinions. If mom and dad say a book is good, they willingly read it with a joyful heart. Better still if they curl up with mom and dad and read good books as a family, bolstering a fondness for beauty and therefore order, which provides a foundation to build upon throughout their lives. But it is when our girls reach the teen years that they tend to close the door in our suggestions. They want the privacy to discover good books on their own. It is this privacy that we need to be wary of. It is not practical to attempt to read every teen book your daughter intends to devour. Some books have so many volumes in a series it is nearly impossible to keep up. But it is important to have conversations with your daughter about the books she chooses to read for pleasure. Ask her what captivates her, thrills her, moves her, takes hold of her. What is it about the books she chooses to read that enrich her through its quality, enchants her through its depths, vitality, and truthfulness? What convinces her through inherent logic and elevates her through the beauty of its poetic content? What are her thoughts on virtue? What is she discovering? Most of these questions I've adapted from one of my favorite books, Aesthetics, by Dietrich von Hildebrand. There are two volumes of this work. The first talks about beauty on all levels, including its objectivity, value, forms, and role in the senses. The second volume applies to Hildebrand's philosophy of beauty of the arts. In these books, Hildebrand defines beauty as the order in God's creation. The good books are good because they reflect natural order and truth while so-called bad books are inherently disordered and contradict what it means to be human. It is important not to be ironic when asking your daughter about a book she is reading, especially if you have concerns about it. She may see through any veiled derision if you criticize her paranormal romance novel in a series and sneer that nothing in that book will elevate her soul. You do not want to crush her honestly find out what she is attracted to in that book, you do not want your daughter to feel as if she has to hide her tastes from you or feel ashamed of them. We want to inspire our daughters. In Landscape with Dragons, another book advocating the good books, Michael O'Brien has valid concerns about inverted morals, the offensive, and the downright profane and irreverent ugliness of many modern books and films targeting our youth. Yes, it is frightening and overwhelming to consider the avenues in which our daughters are influenced and it is tempting to give up trying to stay on top of what she is reading and watching. Michael O'Brien warns us not to dismiss the battle for your daughter's soul. The things she reads do form her. Similarly, it is equally unrealistic and ineffective to make everything released after 1960 off limits. O'Brien says we must remember that we are in a spiritual war zone. God permits this struggle with temptations in order to strengthen us, to teach us to rely more completely on him and less on our own limited strengths, to instruct us and draw us ultimately to himself. Jessica Houghton Wilson, in an article called Reading to See the Fullness of Things, summarizes an idea from Jean-Luc Marion when discussing between two forms of self-knowledge concerning the idol versus the icon within literature the icon being the sacramental order we're all connected to. The idol looks into a mirror and never sees past itself. The only view she sees is self. The icon gazes at the person and reveals to her who she is in God's eyes rather than through her own. It both teaches the gaze how to see and shows the gazer how to venerate the unseen viewer with a capital V. But what hooten Wilson is speaking of is something similar to Dante or Flannery O'Connor where reading is purgatorial. The repulsive characters in works like theirs seem so far away from us, but in the end we realize we share many faults with those characters. Reading works like these become an examination of conscience, a moment of grace that allows us as readers to reevaluate our own shortcomings. In her article, Houghton Wilson is speaking of great books. This does not mean we're only to read books from the literary canon, it is fine to read good books, not only the great ones. And parents are the ultimate judge on what constitutes a good book for their children. Here are some practical suggestions on bringing good books into your daughter's life, in addition to sending her to Oakcrest School, where all the books are good. Read with her. You may already read a bedtime story as a family, or maybe you tried to read together so many days a week, Reading aloud together is a beautiful way to bond and teach. When I introduce Anna of Green Gables to sixth graders, they often lack the stamina to start the book on their own. The language is beautiful and brimming with nature imagery that sounds like a romantic poem instead of prose. Adults may recognize this beauty, but a child can grow weary during the most beautiful passages about grass and a lake. I always begin that book by reading it aloud for the girls. By the time we are introduced to our heroine, they are captivated. Megan cox speaks of the importance of reading aloud in her book, The Enchanted Hour. She mentions an opportunity she had in her research to see a surviving volume of fairy tales of Charles Perrault from 1695. The book was a gift for the teenage niece of Louis XIV. Megan cox noticed in the margins of The Tale of Little Red Riding Hood, were written directions near the dialogue of the wolf when he says, The better to eat you with. The tiny handwriting says, translated from French, these words should be said in a loud voice to make the child afraid that the wolf will eat him. These stories were intended to be read aloud. There is a nonfiction book called The Reading Promise by Alice Ozma. Alice is the daughter of a single father, a school librarian, whom she formed a pact of her own initiative when she was nine years old to read aloud with her father every day for at least ten minutes for a year. She and her father call this challenge The Streak. Not only did they succeed in reading aloud together every day for a year, but they kept the streak going every day until Alice was 18 years old. There were times when they would have to wake up early to fit in their reading, or in later years when Alice is with her friends, she would call her father and have him read to her over the phone. If they were angry at each other, they still would read. In the closing pages of her book, Alice describes in a sort of epilogue on what her father is doing now in his retirement, sitting on the porch with a book, birdwatching. She refers to her father as a superhero. Many readers are attracted to book or reading challenges. I recommend you discourage your daughter from reading challenges that promote mere quantity as an accomplishment. One really good book may take ages to read, but it's worth far more than a stack of novels that feel empty and are quick reads. Challenge your daughter instead to read for pleasure every day. Instead of a large stack of books in a two-read pile, choose one at a time. A stack of book tends to foster the reading of a little of each one and completion of few. For the teen who feels too awkward to read aloud with their parents, there is a fine bond you can form with your daughter in a book club for two. Perhaps you and your daughter can choose a mother-daughter read or a father-daughter read or a family read and discuss the book over dinner. You could even take her out to lunch or a picnic or the park. You can make it special and important that you share this experience of the book and talk about it. It is not necessary to finish the book in order to discuss it. Perhaps it will take four months to read a book. This means you can meet with your daughter four times at a picnic or a cafe or the living room and discuss this book together. Another way to share books with your children is audiobooks. I once taught a student who knew just about every Charles Dickens novel and would talk about the books with me. This student was in seventh grade at the time. While she did not have a full understanding of Dickens' work, I was impressed and puzzled how a 7th grader could know so many books by this author, who takes most high schoolers some time and stamina to appreciate. I assumed she watched film adaptations. She later told me that her family drives to Canada every summer to visit relatives, and for as long as she could remember, her parents would play an audiobook in the car of a Charles Dickens' novel, filling her imagination with beautiful prose. She carries that experience with her to this day as an adult and as an English teacher. Lastly, in support of writing directly in the books we read, I would like to share an anecdote from Lee Lowe, the daughter of Cheryl Lowe, founder of Memoria Press and Highlands Latin School. Lowe has known her mother-in-law since she was 18 and treasures her mother-in-law's book suggestions, which she discusses in her articles, Why to Mark a Book. Cheryl Lowe has already passed away, but Lee Lowe was gifted many of Cheryl's books through her father-in-law, Lee noticed markings in all of her mother-in-law's books, which gave her more insight to Cheryl's reactions to these books. Marking books will visually demonstrate contemplation, help you quickly find your favorite quotes, and also personalize the experience, which is what Lee Lowe points out from reading her mother-in-law's markings. Lowe says it is possible for her children to have a conversation with their grandmother because she took up a pen when she read a book. In her copy of Charlotte's Web, Cheryl Lowe wrote in the margins of the final chapter, Life is full of hard things, but we can strive to help each other and raise ourselves to nobility. Charlotte knew all along she wouldn't survive the fall season, but she helped Wilbur enjoy what she could not. Lilo says, when we mark our books, we, unlike Charlotte, can live beyond our season. We can continue to speak to those we love indefinitely. The danger of bad books may alarm us, but we can find comfort in the power of a good book. Drown out the evil in an abundance of good. Offer your daughter better books to intersperse within her two-read pile and stagger her two-quick reading. Your involvement makes the biggest difference in guiding your child's moral literacy. Reading books as a family, listening to audiobooks during family car trips, initiating a mother-daughter book club, sharing titles, and building a library for a culture of good books with other parents whose judgment you trust are some ways to inundate our children with good reading habits and fill their imagination. Awakening what Joseph Pierce calls an enchantment of reality, a recognition of the delight that accompanies sanctity. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Oakcrest School. To subscribe to our podcast channel, visit oakcrest.org.